This is Leisha Holmes and I'm your host on the Recruiters Recruitment Podcast, kindly brought to you by Hoxo Media. I'm really thrilled to be welcoming today a familiar face to those of you who follow me on Facebook. Uh, this is James Fripp and I'm going to introduce him, hopefully I'll do you justice. He is the Senior Counsel at Atticus Communications, former pon- pon- I can't say it, parliamentarian, select committee, social entrepreneur and very proud father of four and also husband to an entrepreneur, Nikki Fripp of Granny Cool Marmalades. So welcome to the channel today, Jane. How are you? Thank you, Leisha. It's good to be with you. Uh, I'm looking forward to our chat. Me too. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. So um, I've invited you on here because obviously we got to know each other through school, both parents at the local primary school and obviously through your MP career as well. But you actually have got a recruitment history haven't you so you left behind a recruitment career and moved into parliament how did that happen how did that jump happen well it was quite a big leap between the four years in recruitment to then I ended up in parliament but I but definitely um my political career started literally as I ended the involvement on uh, in recruitment I was uh, out of university in uh, sort of bits and bo- bits and bobs jobs uh, studying, having studied in Manchester and then living in Manchester. Um, and I got a, a, a job interview with a recruitment company called Badenock and Clark, who are a fairly well established, they're now owned by Manpower, I think, or a Deco, um, uh, but very specialist uh, interim accounts. And I'll be honest, I mean, I, I sort of went along because I thought, uh, you know, I've got to get a job now. And uh, my old man had said, you know, you've got to get a job now. Uh, mm-hmm. And uh, I went along and actually the process of the interview was the first thing that impressed me about the, the sector as a whole, to be honest, because mm-hmm. they, the, the, a, a junior member of the team meets you first. They hand it up to then a senior member of the team. And then the regional director is, if you get a third interview, is involved. And then actually, if the job offer happens, it's conditional to you meeting the team you're going to work with which I, you know, was a really, I mean, it was exhausting process. And I was a bit like, blooming you know, am I joining MI6 or something? <laughs> but it was a, actually, as the process went on, I got more engaged about it, more enthusiastic about it. And, and I realised, because I was then on the other side of things, doing the same thing and reached different levels of that process, um, that actually the sales process is as much about the pitch for the company to come, for you to come and work for them as it ever is about the individual. And I thought that was quite an enlightened that was a, de- a definite moment of learning for me and something that ran constant through my career, um, my four year career in, in recruitment, um, which is how they invest in people, um, albeit with you know the, fi- the motivation of a good fee or a good contract with a good gross profit margin. But nevertheless, uh, investing in people's skills, their abilities, their knowledge, their uh, sort of teamwork celebrating their independence and, and and ability and confidence and all of that so I've got a lot of good things to say about the recruitment industry and I think a lot of other industries could learn could learn from it yeah definitely and I'm really pleased you said that because that's a really sort of advocate thing to say from outside of it now because obviously you have moved away so what made you leave the recruitment sector and, and pursue a career in politics well well I I <laughs> If I'm honest, I mean, if, if I've been extremely flattering in the first answer, I might not be quite as flattering in the second answer. I, I, if I'm honest, I felt that having kind of got into it, I'd done all right at it. I'd enjoyed the time there and I burnt 
the candle at both ends for four years mm. um, and was earning good money as well. Living in the centre of Manchester, um, I was having a, a riot. It was great. Um, <laughs> but I felt ultimately it wasn't the path I wanted to be on. I wanted, a, if you like, a, a, a vocational, um, political uh, based career. And in fact, rather cheekily, I, I realised that the company I was working for offered sabbaticals to people that had been with them for three years or so and I remember having a conversation with the regional director who said at the time look you know you're going to go on this sabbatical you're going to have two months off you're going to come back and then you'll leave and I went oh no 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 and that's what I did I went away I did two months and I thought no I have it's not just about going back and giving my all actually and so I left without a job to go to, but with the promise of a second interview for a 12-month contract with the Labour Party. Um, um, and that was in 2005. And I, I landed on my feet with that. And and I'd be, I, I was then involved politically, um, you know, from here, from there on in. Oh, that's wonderful. That, that? I love that that's what your regional director always had the foresight that that was what was going to happen. Well, she, she then found, she then, whilst I was on sabbatical, she then found my CV on one of the jobs. <laughs> she, she rather, she rather told me off for that. But, but I mean, you know, I, 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 I think it swings and roundabouts ultimately. Of course it does. Uh, it was clearly what the universe intended. So, I mean, look, you know, when you started your political career in 2005 or you joined the Labour Party, social media was really not not quite there. I think it was about 2007, 2008. So given where we're at now, it's become such a massive part of our lives. And I think perception versus reality gets talked about a lot, particularly as brand has become so important in recruitment. People share the content on LinkedIn and across all the different channels. So your life, you know, the reality of, of being an MP. So, you know, fast forward to when you became MP for Berry North, you know, what's the perception of life to what we expect through the social media that people share? We interrupt this episode of the Recruiters Recruitment Podcast to bring you a message from our wonderful sponsors over at Hoxo Media. Now, recruitment agencies invest heavily in LinkedIn licenses because ultimately it's where we're all at. Given that we spend an average one to two hours a day on our phones, the rest of the time is spent scrolling through LinkedIn, looking for unicorn candidates and target clients. Now, if we look at the recruitment training programs that are available, they tend to be focused around outbound phone sales and leadership skills. So how do you, our listener, maximize the huge investment of time and money that is spent on LinkedIn? Well, this is where Hoxo Media is solving this problem for hundreds of recruitment agencies. And we want to share this message with you. Their academy program allows recruiters across the globe being coached in how to optimize their LinkedIn profile, creating daily habits for building out that unbelievable audience, that target audience, where they're producing their own valuable content that engages the right people and ultimately drives content into inbound sales conversations. As I mentioned, they're working with hundreds of recruitment agencies and there are over 300 recruiters every month enrolling on the academy which enables them to increase their knowledge in how to basically develop the best content and maximize the results from LinkedIn. And to be honest with you, the testimonies have been absolutely incredible. So by enrolling in the academy with just one single payment, you can train your entire business for 12 months, which is why I'm so excited to share this message with you, our listener. So if you're a traditional recruiter like me, 
and you're an owner of a business or you've got teams working for you who rely on outbound calls to attract clients and candidates, then really you do need to listen to this message and get in touch. You might find that you are using LinkedIn, but perhaps just for sharing jobs on there and you struggle generally for um, original content ideas and ultimately the confidence to actually know what is going to be good content for driving that inbound business. So I would love you to speak to Hoxo Media. Drop me a DM either on the link on this message on this episode or send me a WhatsApp and I can give you more information on how your agency can benefit from joining this program. Enjoy the rest of the episode. I think social media generally is a is a is a tool for um, people in public life of you know elected officials or otherwise it, if they want to reach out and engage authentically it's a it's a terrific asset mm-hmm. for that engagement and I embraced it um, I would share my frustrations as much as my victories and I think it's quite important you can see um, you can see through MPs that are that are sort of turn up for the good times, but but duck the issues, yeah. the controversial issues, the the um, uh, the the, the uh, needly issues, the things that divide us. Whereas for me, uh, you know, po- politics is as much about the cut and thrust of debate and arguing, and with the competition of ideas, um, uh, as it is about party uh, politics or party allegiances or, or party machinery. And for me, in Bury North, I understood that um, being a marginal seat, there were always going to be those that sat on the fence and, you know, opted to go one way, one election and different way, the other. So I, I, and, and actually that's, that was my upbringing. My dad was a Church of England minister. We, you know, ideas and debates and arguments were commonplace in, in the household. Um, and so I'm, I'm really comfortable with that. And I use social media. So we did Facebook lives. We, we would do um, hashtag uh, on Twitter, hashtags on Twitter. I build my following on on both, understanding that Facebook tended to be better for the local side of things. Um, Twitter was a bit more of a national conversation or a contribution at a national level. Um, so I think it's great. But you're right. In 2005, it was non-existent. 2007, I think was sort of. I think I signed up to Facebook in 2007, something like that, um, and LinkedIn after a bit after that. Um, but yeah, I mean, social media has changed everything. But it gets a pretty bad name and, and not not uh, not incorrectly in some senses but generally speaking it's a terrific medium to to communicate with authenticity and I think that's a, that's I was just about to say that very sentence authenticity for me is how I when I think about some of the discussions you would get involved in on Facebook we have a local group in what's on in Ramsbottom and I'm sure anyone that's listening to this in your local community you will have a what's on in you know whether it's Bedford or Hartlepool or wherever and you yeah. were so genuine and unique in the fact that you weren't being political when you were responding to people's concerns. People would tag you and you would just respond as another resident, but actually as our MP. And I think that's where, yeah. where you have a, you know, people listening to this in recruitment, having an authentic voice will absolutely set you apart in what you're trying to achieve. And, and you did that with absolute aplomb. And I think possibly without thinking about it, did you just do that? Because that's just- Oh you- yeah, I mean, I, I, I am so- somebody that I, I mean I'm something I'm having to manage now with the pandemic as we all are but I I'm, I'm I don't switch off particularly easily or I go too far you know so I'll go out and enjoy too much red wine or <laughs> or um, I'll go to a gig uh, and have a have a good time um, but but actually I'm fairly incessant on communicating and if I get something in I've had to learn I, 
felt profound to me. It's not, it's certainly not necessarily automatically profound to anyone else, but somebody once drew the, the distinction between um, a, a reply <clears throat> and a response. Mm. Um, and, and I think this is really powerful for me, particularly when I was, when, when you would get tagged, for example, as you say, or a random email or suddenly something was brought to your attention. And in that moment, you've got to decide, right, is what I'm going to say simply to reply to it, i.e., you know, directly on the issue of that's being asked or potentially around the sentiment or the tone in which it's being asked, or am I responding? And a response is a more patient, response is slightly more controlled, a response is not necessarily in, in, the, in the time that others have, de de um, have demanded. Um, and, and that was really that was a real powerful shift of thinking for me that that provided a response was coming, um, uh, that was the thing to focus on, as opposed to you know, which for example, eleven o'clock last night, I got quite a snotty uh, message from somebody, and thought well, that's fine. Ordinarily, I might have got not ordinarily previously, I might have got drawn into a a WhatsApp battle at eleven o'clock actually better at 9.15 just to lay out with calm measure and that's the response sort of insight rather than the reply insight. You know having done by now 70 odd podcasts we've I've never discussed this with anybody else and that is a seismic but it's tiny but seismic mindset shift because my is. response is an actual action isn't it? It is it is and it's a car you know you talk about branding and you talk about um authenticity credibility you know my so i i reflect on three three terms three words of va value if you like um and and that is authenticity credibility and originality those are the three things that i try to bring so so to my my activities my political activity my campaigning my work so that might be you know speaking truth to power respectfully it might also be blimey he's the mp and he's just replied to me you know fine um, uh, but but actually being consistent with that is important. Yeah. One thing I would bemoan something of social media is actually what's on in Rasbottom has since become, um, uh, it's dominated now by people that work for the current MP in administration. So the admin per people work or are associated to. So they proclaim this sort of apolitical status, but mm -hmm. but far from it, they are, they are, promoting one cause over and above another so there are issues with, with social media particularly when uh, social media will proclaim to be something that actually it isn't and that um, that disingenuous side to, to social media is you know it's a, it's a da it's dangerous it's slippery I know and, I th and I'm really pleased that you came up with that caveat because I think that people are becoming much more much more savvy and much more aware to see through all the bullshit basically yeah, uh, absolutely. I, I think definitely people can see that and and you know I, I really appreciate your your stance on that because I think you I, I do can I can see the different handles that you have on Twitter you know you can be talking about something on a national basis and then you're sharing your latest purchases from wax and beans you are very yeah. real on there James yeah. and I bet yeah. you yeah. Good. Back to gigs. I bet that's something you can't wait to oh see. I cannot wait I mean that is a you know, two, two, three cans of lager in the middle of a field with loud music and a couple of mates is just, yeah, just like, uh, yeah, absolutely on the button. We're recording this in March. By the time this goes live, hopefully that is going to be the Hopefully reality. I'll be in a field with mates and a couple <laughs> Might of Might not quite be, yeah. sort of middle, middle of the spring. So, look, you've all, I mean, in terms of your career, you really have got this, you know, incredibly eclectic career so far. And one of the key things that inspires me about you is that you're, you're, 
always innovating and sort of colluding to inspire young people and create a better opportunity for them. So bearing in mind our audience is, is mainly recruitment leaders. What can recruitment leaders do to ensure that we're creating opportunities for the next generation? Gosh, that's a good question. Um, I mean, if, if for a start, hire young people and give them freedom to express uh, and recognise that they're, the way in which they express themselves or contribute may be through a different medium with which you're accustomed, um, to which you're accustomed. And what do I mean by that? Well, in a company I used to run um, eight, nine years ago, uh, we were a creative tech company, we had coders, um, but they were expensive and, and the research and development costs were significant. We were a small business, we were developing tech for use on, online. We'd moved from a sort of desktop publishing to, to a to Sky TV model, really, of, of, of subscription uh, model and software as service. Um, but to get any sort of research and development or ideas creatively from the very people that had built the thing that we were using was quite uh, difficult for two reasons. Firstly, I couldn't speak to them beyond uh, an understanding that I had learned mostly through what they had helped me learn, right? right. So I, the challenge was difficult. If, I, if the, the sort of the science uh, behind it or the coding and the restrictions to, to that innovation, I would be met with, no, that's, I mean, it's just not feasible, right? So I thought, how are we gonna get around this? So I, I hired a young person mm. um, on an apprenticeship who was busy making, you know, making up games overnight, random codes that then became a, a, a game uh, using a particular um, uh, JavaScript. And uh, over, uh, over time, he, I mean, he he wouldn't say boo to a goose. He he wouldn't. He'd barely look at you prop, you know, sort of as we would address each other, or and in a board meeting, uh, sorry, in, in the boardroom in a team meeting, you, you wouldn't get anything from him. But if he had a thought afterwards, he'd go back to his desk, open up Messenger, and fire you mm. a series of ideas, countering a view, um, offering a an insight, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So we set him off on this sort of R and D development. And sooner or later, as he grew in confidence, of course, he started contributing to the team meetings. But in the first instance, his comfort was to communicate through a medium that he felt most at home with, yeah. which, which, you know, reflecting on that time, we could well have lost patience with Cameron, this, this lad, because he's like, come on, Cameron, you know, where, what, what, what are you saying? What are you doing? And then actually over the time, he became the challenge. He became a kind of challenger employee mm. to really smart people but very well established very kind of set in their ways who were kind of building their own citadels their own dominions and didn't want to be disturbed by people like me pushing the thing on um and and so that challenge is really constructed so i would say to any recruiter if you've not got young people in your um in your team in your workforce you're missing a trick yeah. first of all do your bit for the economy the highest proportion of pe young people uh, people out of work because of the pandemic are young people. Yeah. Secondly, um, you don't know what you don't know, but they may well, and they should be coming coming in to encourage you uh, to, to think differently, to innovate, uh, to take a different perspective on things, but don't expect them to come in straight away, as is often the case when I used to speak to employers, actually, as a recruiter, you would have a, you know, a, a kind of 
middle age hiring man, often manager, saying, oh, you, well, you know, youth today, you're bemoaning this and thinking, you know, I'm not sure you were a much cop at 18 without the opportunities you were then given, right? And this is what we do. We end up judging young people based on 20, 30 years in career, learning the, the culture, the parlance, the, the body language, the abilities, the investment that we all receive, and then expect a kid from college to walk in and be bossing it and be up to that level. And yet that, that's, that's a complete um, misinterpretation of, of, of the opportunity that, that's there. So I, that would be my one piece of it. Young people are incredibly resilient um, and they should be enabled and encouraged to challenge the status quo um, because you know ultimately they're going to be the ones that take this economy on and make sure that we've got people to look after us and pay for our bills and all sorts in you know if the government ever comes up with a social care plan. Absolutely and you know I mean everyone's going to be cheering I'm goosebumpy all over with what you've just said totally everything that you said. <laughs> And, you know, I, I mean, I know Shaman doesn't quite qualify as a school leader, but she's um, old, uh, young enough, I should say, to be my daughter. And I have learned so much from her. You learn from young people. You know, I'm a parent of teenagers. I'm, they're always teaching me stuff about social media. They, they, they probably know more about that than I could ever could. So I, everything Absolutely. that you said, no, that's a massive takeaway from this. So I mentioned Nikki at the start of this podcast. So Nikki is your beautiful wife and mother of your four children. And she's also an entrepreneur with uh, Granny Cool. We'll make sure that's tagged in this as well. So yep. you're both entrepreneurs. Do you think this is something that you are born with or is this something that naturally evolves over a period of time through education, through opportunity? Given that you've got four children, have you got entrepreneurs in your blood? I, I think we probably have. I, I, it's definitely a mindset. I think you can be preconditioned to being a entrepreneur sooner than others might be. But I think there are entrepreneurial uh, qualities in us all. Um, some people would, for example, be within a corporate environment, but use entrepreneur skills. And, and I think in America, the term is intrapreneur, which is the, the, um, uh, which is the, the, uh, the entrepreneur that works within a large company. So they use that entrepreneurial spirit, but they're within, they're in-house essentially. Um, and, and I think entrepreneurism is not, uh, in, in many respects, it's, it's sort of overlooked and uh, unvalued. Um, I, I, I think leadership is probably where I would most celebrate uh, I, th I think entrepreneurialism is, is is a sort of precursor to leadership. So you've got to be able to back yourself if you're an entrepreneur. You're unlikely to be following directly uh, anything else if you're an entrepreneur. And, and actually, both those both those qualities are um, fundamental to leadership as well. You also don't tend to just simply agree with something because it that's that's what we've always done. Again, that's a leadership quality. So I think it is that entrepreneurism is uh may well be what i've got may well be what nikki's got um in 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 kind of my i i'm more obsessed with and and, and eat up kind of lessons about lead, lessons of leadership and, in, and impressions of leadership where uh, as in an impression made on me not 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 sort of not mocking or mimicking leadership i don't mean that but where you think crikey what a what a hell of that is such a demonstration of leadership oh, and, who, and who you see that you then? Who, who, off the top of your head without thinking about it uh 
Oh, Lord. Uh, Mo Molan was one of the biggest people to inspire me. She was the uh, Northern Ireland Secretary that oversaw the Northern Ireland Peace Press. And John Hume, who was a, um, a Northern Irish uh, politician who was hugely influential in the Northern Ireland peace process. Um, Harold Wilson, Clement Attlee, Tony Blair. Um, these, are, these are men and women of huge stature. Harriet Harman. Uh, in the Labour Party, on a on a polit so on a political sense, uh, Nelson Mandela, I should think, is probably one of the people that of your seventy podcasts. I should think Nelson Mandela has been mentioned three quarters of the time. I, I, if not, he should be. Um, uh, Jacinda Ardern at the moment, New Zealand, she's bossing it, isn't she? So there's a lot of people to be inspired. But actually, also, whilst I was um, not a fan. Uh, of much of what she did uh, and represented, um, I you, you can't help but be impressed by the resilience that Theresa May showed as Prime Minister. Um, she she got some things spectacularly wrong, but her I, I never doubted that she had a sense of duty and integrity at the heart, and that is not something I would say about Boris Johnson. No, I agree with you totally there. True, true servant leadership, I think. <laughs> we've, we've had yeah, very much so. Recently. Very much so. Well, I think that this has been a very nice conclusion with one final question. Have I, ah. have I potentially just interviewed a future prime minister? Oh, Lord, I didn't know you were asked that. I'd no, I know. To, yes, I'd love to, I'd love to be. Um, I'd love to be a minister in the Labour government. That's what I would most like to be. Um, I, think, I think we're at a crossroads as a country. Um, I think the pandemic is the biggest event of my lifetime, um, uh, the biggest global event of my lifetime. Um, and I think if you consider the, the kind of rebuild narrative of a country that's just borrowed more than it ever spent in both world wars and, and endured more losses than in both world wars, so losses of life than in both world wars, you know, off the back of that, we built a uh, welfare state, the National Health Service. Fast forward to the Wilson government, we had the white heat of technology, the revolution of industry uh, and the creation of the open university and lifelong learning. Um, fast forward, I, I mean, I'm giving you my labour history rather than anything else, but I don't I don't discount that improvements have happened in other governments as well. Um, but uh, I think we're at that moment again. And I think that where, what, what this pandemic has shown is, is the creative force of the, the will, uh, or, or where the will is behind the cre a creative force for good, mm -hmm. then politicians and the political process to decide to invest, to prioritize, to give, um, uh, uh, focus to innovative healthcare, innovative vaccine creation, and pull together. These are really powerful sentiments. And whilst the losses are very real and tragic, in so you know, in every single case for families all over, um, life life will go on, and we must keep it in in the rear view and assess what what's just gone. But as we look up the road, how are we doing things better? How is the injustice that's baked in um, to our society going to be redressed? And how do we lift everybody up and on um, rather than simply those that have the good fortune to, to be strong enough right now? And I think this, you know, this is that moment.
I agree. <clears throat> and I know who I'll be supporting. Well, they, <laughs> well you shouldn't disclose that on this. You'll lose, <laughs> you'll lose listeners. Oh, I don't, well, that's fine. The people know I'm, I'm Marmite, James. I've, I'm very candid in what I talk about. Well, there you go. You heard it here first. And we will know for prosperity whether it came true or not. Thank you so much, Phil. I know you're really busy. And, thanks you know, so much. much thanks to you. And obviously, please pass my best on to Nikki. And we really appreciate you joining us on the Recruiters Recruitment Podcast. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Thank you.